I'm Stephen Wright, and you're listening to Last Days of Diana, a Beyond Reasonable Doubt series from Mail Plus. Episode 4, Blood Conspiracy. On the 6th of January 2004, more than six years after Diana's death, an inquest into the crash opened in London, held by Michael Burgess, the coroner of the Queen's household. Now the first official inquiry will be held, but those expecting quick answers will be disappointed. What happened today of the inquest, I am hoping that the truth will come out. The coroner asked the Metropolitan Police to make inquiries in response to speculation that the deaths of Diana, Dodie Fayed and Henri Paul were not an accident. In 2004, Lord Stevens, then known as Sir John Stevens, was the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, and he was asked by the Royal Coroner to lead an investigation into the circumstances surrounding Diana's death and the conspiracy theories. Lord Stevens, can you talk me through how that appointment came about? There'd been a, an article in the Daily Mirror in particular, amongst other kind of sources of information, that there was real concern in relation to the death. And the opening of the inquest, he announced that uh, he wanted me to do the inquiry. And we were going to make it probably into a, a criminal inquiry, but that, more of that later. Was there a part of you that sense this was a bit of a poison chalice because the stakes were so high and emotions, incredibly, were still running high around Diana's death six years on. Oh, yes, absolutely. I'd been involved for a very lengthy period of time in Northern Ireland, a very lengthy, complex and stressful inquiry. I knew, quite frankly, that these inquiries that you do, no one ends up with any plaudits for doing them because some people will believe you and some people won't. But the only way to deal with these inquiries is go where the evidence takes you and just drive on into the evidence, find out what's going on. Don't be pushed aside one way or the other other than what the evidence tells you. There were certain journalists, weren't there, Lord Stevens, who were feeding the frenzy around conspiracy theories around Diana's death what really became an industry in fake news. Fake news, not a term used at that time, but obviously a very common phrase these days. I just wonder what your view was on that, because it didn't help matters, did it? No, it didn't help matters. And, of course, when you've got that type of rumour, allegation, then you can, you can actually be pulled off course about what you're trying to do and getting to the truth. That's why it's very, very important to uh, concentrate on the evidence. How did you, as a very, very experienced commissioner, chief constable, former detective, going back a long, distinguished career, how did you separate what your own private feelings may have been about the likelihood of a murder conspiracy with doing an objective, fact-based investigation? How do you go about doing that, Lord Stevens? That is a really very, as I knew you'd ask me, a very, very important question. And, you know, the bottom line of it all is that you have to absolutely keep yourself neutral and follow the evidence. You mentioned that Operation Paget was a criminal investigation. 
What did that mean in reality? Well, that's a very important point that it was a criminal investigation. And the decision for that made in 2004, after legal advice was actually mine and mine alone. Although you make these decisions not in isolation, you listen to what people say. So we made it into a criminal investigation. The allegations, as I've outlined, which were made by Mr. Mohammed Al-Fayed, were extremely serious. They were conspiracy to murder and murder, and therefore they had to be investigated in a way that was similar to any other allegations made of murder or any other criminal allegation. And then what we then did took a very long time of working through each and every allegation and specifically turning it into an allegation and turning those allegations into specific investigations. So each and every one was investigated and then we would come to a conclusion at the end of the day. That was the process. So would that make it easier, the fact that you could potentially interview someone under caution well, it makes it a lot easier because, of course, you know, as police officers, you've got a power of arrest, you've got powers to detain people, you've got very stringent powers in terms of stop and searching and that type of thing. So when it's a criminal investigation, as distinct from a civil investigation, then you're in a different place altogether. So once you'd assembled your team, how did you go about the investigation? We had to set the actual inquiry up in a way that was going to look at every single allegation made, test that allegation, investigate it, and come to a conclusion at the end of the day. And remember what I said at the very beginning, go where the evidence takes you. That evidence took us into certain alleyways, which were very sensitive. I'm afraid we have to do that uh, because the job had to be done properly and we were determined as a team to do that job properly. They were indisputable facts, weren't there? In the uh, circumstances, Diana's death, car, Mercedes, driving very fast by Henri Paul, more than 60 miles an hour, hitting the 13th concrete pedal in the armour tunnel. There had been a post-mortem on the deceased, Henri Paul in particular, there was issues around him drinking heavily, background of drug abuse, allegedly. But there was also all these conspiracy theories which were running around at the launch of your investigation, that Diana was engaged, that she was pregnant, that the Duke of Edinburgh was involved in a, a plot to murder her, that, that Diana had written a letter predicting her own death, that her brakes would be tampered, suggesting even that the Prince of Wales might be involved in wanting her to be killed. There was a mystery around a white Fiat, which had been seen at the scene, involved in a collision, I believe, wasn't it, with the Mercedes. How did you address that? Because that and it's not with the benefit of hindsight, even then, to me, as an experienced crime journalist, it seemed really far-fetched. But you had a job to do, didn't you? And you had to go through those yeah. conspiracies. Please talk us through how you went about addressing those. Yes, I think the first thing was to make sure that we had a very good relationship with the French investigators, which wasn't too hard to do. They came from the same kind of background that um, our people did, my people did, in terms of anti-terrorism and investigation. So... The other thing that we wanted to do very, very quickly was to get the car back over here so that we could have it examined by the forensic people. We wanted also to involve the people who are the experts in relation to car crashes. I wanted the largest comprehensive survey and reconstruction by the Transport and Research Laboratory. They would, in fact, use techniques which are now used worldwide now of actually reconstructing that particular crash. We were going to actually 
analyse, and Henri Paul was part of this, analyse hopefully his blood samples again. We followed everything through to the letter and we were not going to come to any conclusions unless we were actually satisfied that the evidence either proved or disproved those allegations. Working alongside Lord Stevens was an 11-person team of detectives and specialists, including forensic pathologist Dr Dick Shepherd. In 2004, Michael Burgess had suggested that I be appointed as the uh, expert forensic pathologist to advise Paget. You've written in your book, Unnatural Causes, about the difficulties of working on this case. What was the major, most difficult challenge you faced in those early weeks of your involvement in the case? I think the major challenge was trying to find out what my remit or the edges of my remit, because the pathology obviously was crucial and, and is really, as a forensic pathologist, where I'm likely to be most important and involved. But of course, with all of these things, there are grey margins. I needed to understand the vehicle. I needed to understand the accident dynamics, how the vehicle was travelling. I needed to understand also the mechanics of what happened actually in hospital, so her treatment prior to getting to hospital, her cardiac arrest on route, her treatment, her surgery in hospital, how she was managed in hospital, why embalming was performed there. Then I needed to turn my attention to what happened to the samples that were taken, how the samples were taken from Henri Paul and submitted for toxicological examination, because there were some odd aspects to some of those things that were just throwing what should have been straightforward scientific tests on carefully controlled exhibits, throwing those into doubt and dispute. Diana and Dodie died on French soil. So did that create a logistical problem for you early on in getting access to the sort of things you're after? Yes, it did. We had a lot. We had material broadly based on Henri Paul's post-mortem, but not certainly. Uh, we had little evidence about his toxicology other than the simple bald results stating what had happened. And there were some anomalies in there. There were presence of carbon monoxide, which was difficult to explain. There was presence of a drug that was usually associated with treating intestinal worms in children that needed to be explained. The level of alcohol needed to be explained. So central to me is the pathology, understanding actual injuries, understanding how they contributed and finally caused death. But there are all these peripheral aspects as well. And it was those peripheral things that were really hard to get a firm handle on solid information. Today, Sir John retraced their steps, back in front of the now famous revolving door, hoping to unravel some of the mysteries and myths. As part of his investigation, Lord Stevens visited Paris and the Alma Tunnel where the crash happened. The Metropolitan Commissioner wants to work with the French, at his side, Martine Montaille, the head of the CID in Paris. I was there, reporting on the visit for the Daily Mail, and I remember him meeting with French investigators and walking through the tunnel, which was effectively the crime scene in his investigation. Sir John insists that this is no publicity stunt and that he has gained valuable information here, but he's going to have his work cut out to convince all those who cling to the conspiracy theories. Lord Stevens 
why did you feel you had to visit the tunnel yourself and see the spot where the crash happened? It was very important I went down there as the head of the investigation for me not to go and see the scene and look at the scene, talk to people who had been involved there, specifically the French officers and the head of the French judiciaire. She was, was the head of the French detective force who'd actually assisted us in what we're doing. To have not gone there to the scene would have been absolutely ridiculous. I had to go to the scene. It was quite interesting, Dave Douglas and I, who were in the car, being chased actually by the paparazzi at that time to get some feel also for what must have happened that night. And I don't think we'd had the kind of attention that they'd had, but we had probably half of it, and it was extraordinary. You mean you got a sense of what Diana and Dodie must have felt like that night because of all the attention on you during that trip? The influence of those press people behind you in the car, which at the end of the day would have come... As a shock, I think some people, you know, when Dodie and Princess were actually going from the apartment in Paris back to the Ritz and they were being chased, it was an extraordinary feeling. And I think you were there, Stephen, you might well have seen some of it, felt the atmosphere and felt the threat of the paparazzi as they were running around us in motorcycles and cars. I do remember that very well. It's a very high-profile visit, uh, featured prominently in the Daily Mail. I remember you doing an impromptu sort of press call at the barrier and press corps were asking you questions and yeah there's a lot a lot of media interest in it and it's really bizarre isn't it that was seven years on from when diana died the interest there was extraordinary and the interest it will never go away it will always still be of massive interest when you were doing that walk through the alma tunnel what were your initial impressions about the scene of the crash because it wasn't disputed that the Mercedes was being driven very quickly at over 60 miles an hour. The entrance of the tunnel, there was a big dip where the actual car would have gone up and then down quite a gradient. I was surprised how severe that was. What also surprised me walking through the tunnel was the narrowness of that tunnel with those colonnades, as you call it, on the left-hand side, which, you know, the 13th one that the car went into. I was amazed at the small amount of space going under the Alma Tunnel and, as I said, the gradient before you went in. And for anyone doing 60 to 65 miles an hour in a car that actually was not as good as the cars that we drive now, even driving a car now, you'd be in trouble, I think. And also, having had a few drinks and being chased by the paparazzi, it was easy really to see how that could have happened. But on the other hand, that wasn't good enough for us. We wanted to have the experts have a look at it, reconstruct it and come up with what actually happened based on science. One of the key things you had to do was to get the Mercedes, the wreckage of the Mercedes, back to the UK. Could you please explain why that was so important to you and your inquiries? Well, it was massively important because we wanted the car examined. If you remember that on that particular night, the plans had been changed by Dodi and I think by Mohammed Al-Fayed was part of this decision-making where the cars that were originally used were actually driven to the front of the hotel. They had a car which Diana and Dodi were in when they went to the hotel. Then they had a chase car to make sure they could keep the paparazzi off the back of their car. Well, all those things were changed overnight or rather very, very quickly and with an hour or two. And what happened was Henri Paul was called back. He'd gone home. Another car was produced, which wasn't the same quality of car that the other two cars were, and that was used. So it's really very, very important to go through with the professionals. And as I say, coming from 
the Transport and Research Laboratory, the National Transport and Research Laboratory, the best people for doing these things in the world, it said, for them to look at the car, examine the car to see what had happened. Also in the car, which was a little bit more difficult, was still traces of the blood, her blood, other people's blood, and we wanted that tested. So all of that had to take place. And for the reconstruction to be done properly, we had to have the car in our possession over here. And as you say, the car was brought back to the UK, the Mercedes. I mean, it was complete and utter wreckage, wasn't it? But you had to establish whether it had been sabotaged. That's right. We brought it back and the uh, Transport and Research Laboratory took it to bits. They looked at every single part of it. They then assessed its weight. They assessed everything about it. I mean, what they did was just a marvel, a scientific marvel, how they did that. And then we reconstructed the Alma Tunnel in terms of uh, technology, which used lasers and the rest of it, and totally reconstructed what took place. And it was the first time it had been done, and it's been used now around the world for reconstructing traffic accidents. It was a tremendous job that the team did putting it all together, and it was a tremendous job that the research laboratory did. In his role as pathologist to Operation Paget, Dr Dick Shepherd had two main areas of concern. The cause of death and any evidence hidden in the blood samples taken back in 97 of what might have caused the crash to happen. Since all three victims of the crash had been buried years before, Dr Shepherd was largely reliant on the records of autopsies carried out at the time of the accident as well as a limited number of blood samples still in the lab. Dr Shepard, you also went to Paris back in 2004, though not at the same time as Lord Stevens. Why did you feel the need to go? You already had the report, so what were you hoping to gain from going to Paris that you couldn't learn from those reports? I had that information, but, you know, you have to understand everything that's going on inside a vehicle to really understand the totality of the events and why one person survived with minimal injuries or admittedly later, later fatal, and why two people died. You have to understand the totality of it. We had the injuries to Dodie. We wanted the injuries to understand the injuries to Henri Paul and particularly, of course, to get hold of a real understanding of what had happened to the toxicology samples that were taken from him. Did it seem to you that the evidence you were working from had been collected in a slapdash way? I don't think it was. I think the difference was that Professor Lecon, the pathologist who was the head of the mortuary and that particular forensic science unit, she was called in in the middle of the night. So I think she did it well. But her documentation, I'm afraid, had some gaps in it. And, you know, I've done this job now for 35, 40 years. And I know that, you know, the number of times I've looked back and you go, oh, why didn't I make a note of that? Why didn't I write that down? But when you're dealing with a case that is as high profile as this, you always write absolutely everything down. And so there is a perfect documentation. So it was her gaps in her documentation. But the actual examination was very well performed, presented beautifully in her report. It's just that there were these gaps. And gaps are what you do not need if you're trying to make something conspiracy proof. Your main focus was on Diana, obviously, but you were also interested in Dodie Fired and the driver, Henri Paul. 
Did you look at the blood samples and toxicology from all of them? don't think any toxicology was done on Dodie or Diana. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure because in terms of English law, of course, they weren't the driver of the vehicle. Right. There was no doubt about that. And so toxicology wasn't performed. But blood had been taken from Henri Paul, hadn't it? And that was part of the accusations made by Mohammed Al-Fayed and his lawyers, because there were some inconsistencies in how the blood had been taken and that allowed them to cast doubt on the accuracy of the evidence. I asked Michael Cole, Mohammed Al-Fayed's former PR chief, about this. What was never and has never been adequately explained is how the blood sample taken allegedly from Henri Paul, the driver, could have been his because it contained 30% of carbon monoxide. Now, if your blood has 30% of carbon monoxide, you can hardly function as a human being. You'd have to sit on the floor, hold your head. It remains one of those mysteries that we cannot explain. But there is an explanation for it. And the explanation would be that the blood that was presented was not only Paul's blood, but the blood of a suicide who had taken his own life by breathing in petrol fumes and whose blood sample was then switched with that of Henri Paul. What was the issue with the way Henri Paul's blood had been taken? It might have been a slightly technical one. Professor Lacan described taking samples from the heart, which is a perfectly forensically acceptable and approved site of sampling. However, the photographs showed that she clearly had taken some samples from a different site in the body. And this is, in a sense, added on to some of the comments that were being made by Mr. Alfied and his legal team, is they were doubting that the origin of all of the samples that were tested. In other words, they were saying, yeah, OK, you've got a blood sample, but we dispute that these originated from Henri Port. There are also concerns raised by the Alfired team that the blood alcohol level recorded for Henri Port could not have been correct. What is also not explained is why it took two searches of Henri Paul's apartment to find any alcohol there. The CCTV footage in the Ritz Hotel shows him acting quite normally with no sign of any effects of drunkenness, seen running up and down stairs, bending down to tie his shoelaces, standing close to Diana and Dodie, interacting perfectly normally with them in his life. At the Ritz, he'd been on two Mercedes-Benz courses for chauffeurs of high-profile people or possible targets of terrorism, which he'd passed with, with commendations. When I was in Paris, he drove me around. On one occasion, when my wife and daughter came to Paris, he drove them around all day. I would not have put my wife and daughter in a car with a man who I didn't trust, and I don't think he was the person as depicted. There were so much lies that were told. Dr Shepard, how did you go about trying to prove that the blood, which showed that Henri Paul had been drinking, was actually his and could be used as evidence? In the end, the samples had to be DNA tested. The residual samples that were still in the laboratories seven, eight years later had to be DNA tested to prove that they had come from Henri Paul. And... Those that still remained were shown to all have originated from Henri Paul, but some had been used up and that left 
a slight niggle in the background of which samples were taken from those samples that were used up. But it becomes such a complicated conspiracy to say, well, there, yes, there was some fake blood, but it was only the fake blood that's been used up, the real ones left. It, it, it became too complicated. But it was another point where something wasn't quite as it was originally painted to be. And that allows, always allows, the conspiracy theories to blossom and to gain ground. One of the key elements of the conspiracy theories was this issue of Diana's body being embalmed before she was flown back to the UK later in the day after she died. For those who may not be so familiar with what embalming involves, could you please explain you know, what that involves and how it could affect the pathology around her death. Embalming is a common procedure. It's used every day in thousands of cases and it involves removing as much of the blood in the body as is possible and replacing it with a solution of formalin, which is a preservative, which slows decomposition. And that's fine. It's very good. It works extremely well for what it's meant to do. But of course, if you're looking for or considering looking for drugs or alcohol, it completely blocks the chance of there being any reliability if those tests are performed. And that was the concern that the embalming was done to obscure the possibility to block the chance of toxicology being performed. I personally don't think so, because Dodie wasn't embalmed, so you would have him as a comparator. But equally, I also know that members of the royal family are always embalmed after their death. It is a standard part of the protocol, and I'm sure that is what was being used by the embassy in Paris So would that have affected the accuracy of the test to establish whether she was or wasn't pregnant, as as was claimed? No, it would have had no effect on those tests, on whether any drugs or alcohol were present in the system. Yes, it would have affected those. But in fact, those tests were never performed. So in a sense, it falls away because those tests were never performed and therefore the toxicology is irrelevant or the effects on the toxicology are irrelevant. In terms of pregnancy, there are no known tests that can be done post-mortem that might have indicated it. It is very much more a question of the pathologist examining the uterus and seeing whether there are changes within it that would indicate that the person was pregnant. With Diana having been buried many years before, it wasn't possible to establish, the way Dr Shepard just described, if the rumours that Diana had been pregnant were true. There was other evidence, however, to suggest that she wasn't, but we'll be addressing that in a later episode. Dr Shepard was able to establish, however, the cause of death. The central facts of the case were that the Mercedes driven by Henri Paul hit the 13th concrete pillar in the armoured tunnel at more than 60 miles an hour. Henri Paul and Dodie Fired, who were sat directly behind him, died instantly. Neither were wearing seatbelts. 
you know, even uh, in a Mercedes with all its mechanically built-in crumple zones and airbags and all these things, at 60 miles an hour, a human being has the mass, the travelling mass, of something approaching an elephant. You don't cope well with that sort of velocity hitting a solid and unyielding object such as a windscreen or, as in Dodie's case, the person sitting in front of him, Henri Paul. Princess Diana was also not wearing her seatbelt. Dr Shepard, the bottom line is that had Diana been wearing a seatbelt, it's very likely she would have survived the accident, isn't it? That's my view, yes. You know, a Mercedes is an extremely safe vehicle with the crumple zones, the airbags, with all of the other things that are there to protect you from the vehicle. The one thing that the manufacturers can't do is make you put on your seatbelt. And as I say, in terms of Dodie and Henri Paul, Dodie hit Henri Paul with the weight of approximately an elephant. The man in front of Diana was their bodyguard, Trevor Rees-Jones. We know that he had put on his seatbelt. Slightly unusual in a security guard because they want freedom to move and act quickly. But he had his seatbelt on. Despite that, he received very serious injuries. And that was probably the protection that Diana had was he had a seatbelt on. And so he provided a degree of cushioning when she came forward, resulting in much less serious injuries to her. Unfortunately, the injury that she did have was ultimately fatal but it was hidden. Could anything have realistically been done then to have saved her life? Or was it, was it just too much of a race against time to identify why she was having that cardiac arrest? Because it was hidden, because it was such a difficult thing to treat, I think there was practically no chance from the moment that the car hit the pillar that Diana was going to survive. When you look at those injuries, you are basically being asked to giving a view on the likelihood of this being a staged car crash, a murder. It seems very far-fetched, doesn't it, that those behind this supposed conspiracy would be able to rely on her dying from such an unusual injury? It is such an unusual injury. I don't think there is anyone, even if you took a forensic pathologist and said, well, design an injury that would be superficially not a problem but would cause death. Even we, with our experience of trauma, would really struggle with coming up with this particular injury. I've been covering crime for a long, long time, more than 25 years, the Daily Mail. And it's my opinion that if you were going to hatch a murder plot, doing it in a tunnel in central Paris, in front of the world's paparazzi, it wouldn't be a good place in terms of your chances of getting away with it. I put this to Michael Cole, that the unlucky nature of the injury that killed Diana makes it highly unlikely that it could have been planned. And that sad as it is, an accident seems the more likely answer. With regard to what your pathologist has said uh, and the unfortunate nature of the injury, because it is without doubt that the princess was conscious and it is without doubt that she was talking 
from time to time, falling in and out of consciousness in the ambulance. But her life could have been saved if it hadn't taken 43 minutes to get her to a hospital a few miles away. I think if you or I had been injured in such an, a way, in such an accident, and it took 43 minutes to get us to hospital, I think our families would wonder why. And there's never been any good explanation of why the ambulance stopped for a full five minutes within sight of the gates of the hospital. As Lord Stevens and his team began their inquiry, there were many, many unanswered questions, not just in relation to the forensic evidence, but the actions of individuals and organisations accused of conspiracy to murder. And his inquiry would take him to the very heart of the British establishment. You've been listening to Last Days of Diana, a Beyond Reasonable Doubt podcast series for Mail Plus, with me, Stephen Wright. Next time... John Stevens came to see Mohammed and assured him that he would do everything within his powers to find the truth. This is the most famous, the most beautiful lady in the world, right? She is the mother of the future king. They've been murdered with my son and nothing. I've been fighting for six years and nothing after now happened. There was a kind of particular reference made to Prince Charles, so I did have to go and see Prince Charles at St. James's Palace in 2005. You know, nobody is above the law, and if that was a serious possibility that he had murdered his ex-wife, then that needed to be investigated. May I ask you, did you actually ask him directly out, were you involved? If you've enjoyed listening, please consider telling your friends and if you'd like more on this and other stories, you can visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more, including previous Beyond Reasonable Doubt episodes.